Let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings. We're going to look at chapter 13 tonight. It's a fairly lengthy chapter, and so just to get us caught up to where we're at, last, the week before last, we were in 1 Kings 12, and it was immediately after the death of Solomon that Solomon's son Rehoboam began taking responsibility, taking the reign of his father from that point onward. And you'll remember that uh, the people of Israel had been working very hard. Uh, some of them were slaves. Uh, some of them were just paid. Uh, but, but either way, the, the children of Israel were under a lot of duress because of all of the different building projects that Solomon had, uh, had done. And we know that it took seven years for the temple and another 13 years for his own palace and the other uh, buildings in the palatial complex, if you will, there in Jerusalem. So a total of 20 years, literally half of his reign was in construction. And uh, that needed a lot of laborers. And so the people were getting a little frustrated because when Solomon died, they were thinking to themselves that maybe his son Rehoboam would lift the, uh, some of this burden from them. And you remember that Rehoboam contacted the older men who had been leaders under Solomon, and he approached them and he said, what should we do You know, uh, from this request of the people? And they said, if you will be a servant, you, know, you will um, lift this affliction from them and re- you know, deliver them from some of this heavy burden, and they'll be your servants forever. And then uh, Rehoboam, unfortunately, he, he shunned that um, that, uh, that advice, and he goes to the younger men who grew up with him, and they said, well, they're complaining. They're complaining? Well, this is what you do. You tell them that you're going to even up the ante, and you're going to make them even more, uh, bring them more into labor. And unfortunately, and very foolishly, Rehoboam took that advice, and the people got so frustrated that it really splintered the country. And so Rehoboam only really had uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin, uh, otherwise known as just the tribe of Judah, even though it encompassed both of those two southern tribes. And Jeroboam, who was just a servant of Solomon's, who had been in exile in Egypt, he's now back at the scene, and he was born in Ephraim up in the, in the northern part of Israel. And so now he becomes the king over the northern ten tribes, and last week, we, we looked at how Jeroboam had kept and made two different altars, uh, one in Bethel in the, in the southern part of his northern kingdom, and then one in the northern part in the, in the town of Dan. And he made two separate altars there, and he put golden calves at each one of these things and caused Israel to fall into idolatry, and they would have it so. It tells us in, uh, in, in chapter 12 that he actually uh, sought advice for this. And so he sought the wrong advice. Because if he would have done the right thing, he would have uh, not done that. But as a man now over 10 tribes, he, ha- he felt he had to do something. Because we know that all, all Israel is supposed to go down to Jerusalem at least three times a year and uh, take part in the feasts of the, the unleavened bread or Passover and the uh, Feast of Tabernacles and uh, Pentecost. And those were the three feasts that every Jewish male was to go three times a year. 
So now Jeroboam's got a problem. He's like, in order for me to keep the people, to control the people, I've got to build my own worship centers. And, and he did that. And he uh, uh, made these false calves, these false golden idols, which was very familiar to Israel, going way back even hundreds of years prior to this time. They, 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 they grew up, they came out of Egypt still having that idolatry as part of, their, of what they've seen. In fact, you remember, they were not very long out of Egypt and they built a golden calf. And uh, Moses' brother, his older brother, Aaron, was the one who led them in this idolatrous worship. Here is your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And that's the very same line that Jeroboam said to the people now that they've built these two shrines, one in Bethel in the south and one in Dan in the north. And incidentally, if you go to Israel with us in the next Israel trip, and hopefully we'll get dates for that, uh, that's one of the places that we go, is you actually can go to that center where that actually took place. And you'll see uh, a model of the altar. The altar is pretty much gone, but the foundation of it is still there, and they've erected like a, what it might have looked like. And you can, uh, it's really fascinating. A lot of history up there in Dan. And so um, that's what happened. And, and not only did Jeroboam lead them in this idolatrous worship, but he even makes up a feast day. On the seventh month, on the 15th day of that month, was to be the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what does he do? He devises of his own heart a feast for the northern ten tribes, and it would be exactly to the day one month later. So instead of on the seventh month and the 15th day of the year, or 15th day of the month, he would do it on the eighth month and the 15th day of the, of the month. And so exactly one month later, he would have this feast and so, and there's nowhere in Scripture where that was supposed to happen. That was a thing that he made up. And thus, as a result of this, as you go through the Scripture, you're going to see a lot of uh, recollecting, the Lord bringing people, bringing you and I back to this idea of this worship of Jeroboam and how it was so in incredibly wicked. In fact, all the other kings of the northern tribes will be compared to the wickedness of Jeroboam. And they never, ever recovered from that. They never did. And what a sad commentary. Because God gave to him, just like he did Rehoboam, much opportunity to change and to do the right thing. And God even told him, Jeroboam, if you obey me, then you're going to be blessed. And he didn't obey. And the northern Chen tribes, they never obeyed the Lord. And incidentally, they were the first ones to go into captivity in 722 B.C. to Assyria. And it wasn't later, until you know, 606 B.C. or 605, somewhere in that range, that Babylon finally came against Judah and took them captive because they didn't learn anything from their northern sister. They continued doing those idolatrous practices, even some of the kings of Judah sacrificing their children to Molech, to this molten god that they would heat up in the valley of Hinnom, which is right there to the south of the Temple Mount today. And so that's where we're at. And so finally, we get to verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, and uh, let's just read the whole chapter. Uh, and it says, uh, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense, and then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign or the miracle which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. And so it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! And then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself." And the altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And so the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him. And became as before. And then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. And so he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works of the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to him, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God who came from Judah went. And then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And so they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he says, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way you came. And he said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. I like that, how the Bible just puts it in parentheses. Just in case you're, you're curious, he was lying to him. Okay, so we got that straight. Verse 19, so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, thus says the Lord. Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. That's amazing, isn't it? So it was, after that he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back, And when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. 
And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse, and there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse. Get all this picture in your head, because it's really fascinating to consider just how many strange things are happening here. And so um, it's just amazing to me. So his corpse was thrown on the road, the lion stood there, and, and there men passed by, saw the corpse thrown on the road, the lion standing there. Then they went and they told it into the city where the old prophet dwelt. And now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who was disobedient to the, Lord, uh, to the word of the Lord. And therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, saddle the donkey for me. And so they saddled it. And then he went and found his corpse down on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back. And so the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And then he laid the corpse in his own tomb and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. And so it was. After he had buried him, that he, brought, that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places himself. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, and so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. So as we read this passage, it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, here the man of God is doing the right thing, and now you've got this old prophet and the Lord uses him. There's so much about this event that just strikes you, doesn't it? It's like, why would God use this old, older prophet who is obviously listening to a lying spirit? Why would God now all of a sudden use him? And there's a couple of things that we have to remember. And that is, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 47. You can write it in your margin of your Bible over this heading of this chapter, perhaps. But really, I think of this chapter as, if I had to put a title to it, it would be, to whom, um, what, what did I call it? To whom much is given, much is required. And we see that in Luke chapter 12. It says, and that servant, Jesus speaking, he says, who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. And that's really what this is all about. God had spoken to the man of God and told him specifically what to do. And he was faithfully doing it up to a point. And he was deceived by another man who claimed to be a man of God. And he probably was at one time, and, um, but he had grown old, uh, probably compromised. 
and we will look at that later. It's an unfortunate thing. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, just to further elaborate on this in chapter 14, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. You will receive greater condemnation because they were the ones who were supposed to know, and yet they left their post. What God had called them to do, they weren't doing. And see, God has a problem with that. When we are called to do something, we need to do it. We need to do it faithfully. And we have to be careful of the wiles of the devil because he's always trying to get us off course. Now, it may not result in your death, and thank God for the age of grace that we live in now, but God is not any different today than he was back at this time. He's never changed In James chapter 3, it says, My brethren, let not, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And it's true. You know, if you're in a place of authority, it's really important that you're careful about the things you say. And I'm learning this all too well myself. But notice back in verse 1 here, that the man of God went from Judah to Bethel. Now think about that. Judah is in the south, and Bethel is, is further north of that, under the jurisdiction of the northern ten tribes. But a great question to ask is, why did God have to send a man of God from Judah to Bethel, where Jeroboam was reigning? Wasn't there, a, and the obvious question, or the answer is, well, there evidently wasn't a man of God in the northern part. Or if there was, they weren't willing and it's really a sad commentary, isn't it, on the old prophet that we read about already. Why didn't God choose him? God didn't choose him because evidently he was already compromised. I don't know that it had so much to do with age because God used very aged men to do really extraordinary things. But it's also a sad commentary on the attitude of the people of the north. Was there not a person of God? Was there not a man of God who, could, who God could use? And notice at the end of verse 1, it says that Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And I said before that Jeroboam was an Ephraimite, meaning he was born and came from Ephraim, which is in the northern ten tribes. And was he supposed to be offering incense and taking the role of a priest? No, he wasn't. What tribe was that dedicated to? Levi. Yes. So he had no place in doing what he's doing. Not only did he erect these idolatrous altars, which he shouldn't have done, but now he's acting and fulfilling the role of a priest. And, and again, um, you know, he made up the new holiday as well for them. But notice in verse 2 that he cried out to the altar saying, O altar, notice the man of God from Judah comes and he's standing there before the altar in Bethel and there is Jeroboam offering incense, acting in the, in the, in the, in the role of a priest and, and this man of God, we don't even know his name. <laughs> I love that too. God has servants and you know what? I could care less if my name is named. Just let me be a servant of yours, Lord. Let me be a servant of yours, and happy will I be if you can do anything in and through me. But he doesn't even mention his name. But notice the man of God cries out against the altar itself. And furtherly, by implication, he's also bringing judgment upon 
uh, what Jeroboam is doing as well. But notice he addresses the, the altar because this pagan idolatrous altar was an affront to God and it was a sin. We've already read that. And it was and, and Jeroboam, as a leader, he was supposed to be bringing people closer to the Lord, but instead he's leading them away from God and leading them somewhere else, leading them to the doctrine of demons and worshiping demons. And that's literally what he was doing. And God hated it even more because that would be the catalyst for the fall of the northern kingdom, and they never recovered. And God gave them a long time. He gave them a long time to repent of their sin. Over a, you know, quite a long time. A couple hundred years, maybe 200 years, something like that. I didn't do the math, so I'm just estimating. But enough time to repent. But notice in verse 2, it also says, Behold, a child, Josiah by name. And, and this is interesting because we know that yet future to this event, way down the, the, the road in years, over 290 years in the future, Josiah would be born. And here God names him before he would even be born. Josiah was just eight years old when he became king. Can you imagine that? He's still running around in a Spider-Man outfit with a sword, you know, and, and God's like, you know, you're, you're the king of Israel. <laughs> it's okay to have the sword, but you might want to change the outfit, right? Eight years old. And when I think of this young man being called out by the Lord over almost 300 years before he was born, reminds me of another time. And Isaiah tells it to us in Isaiah chapter 44, uh, 28 through uh, chapter 45, verse 7, where God calls another man specifically by name. It's the only place in the scripture that I know of, other than arguably maybe John the Baptist and Jesus. But we're talking about a long time before these men were born, at least 150 years, God calls Cyrus, the man who would ultimately let the children of Israel leave Babylon when they went into captivity. God calls him out by name over 150 years before he was even born. An amazing prophecy. And notice at the end of verse 2, it says, And on you he shall sacrifice the priests on this altar Josiah, by name, who hasn't even been born yet, he is going to sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And again, he, he, wouldn't, even come to, uh, he wouldn't even be born for another 290 years. It's just such an amazing thing. Uh, Josiah, just in case you're curious, he reigned from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. And this event that we were looking at, that uh, Josiah actually did this, and we're going to read it right now, was in 621 B.C. So turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23, because we're going to look at a handful of verses here. Okay, so now what we're doing is, when we think about this, this prophecy that is being given here in this verse, in, chapter, in verse 2, it's speaking of specifically the event that we're looking at in 2 Kings chapter 23. Let's look at it. 
Look at the first four verses and then 15 through 20. But notice it says, now the king, speaking of Josiah by name, again, we're fast forwarding about 290 years approximately. The king, Josiah, sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And remember that Josiah was the reformer king. He was perhaps one of the best kings of Judah that it had ever had. He was a young man who was in there for a short period of time. He was, only, um, he was 39 years old when he died. But those 39 years, he did a lot of work. And he cleaned out all of the junk that had been happening in the temple. All the idolatrous worship. All of the high places. He cleaned it all off. And he, he killed uh, priests and, and, you know, who were leading these types of worship. So he really cleaned house, literally, and one of, the most great, one of the greatest kings of Judah. He says, The king sent to them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. So all this time, a book of the law was lying in the dust somewhere in the temple, probably underneath a bunch of idols. (laughs) And they found it, and they bring it to him. And notice what happens. The king stood by the pillar, he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes. Notice, with all of his heart and all of his soul, no doubt he was reading, was it Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 and 5? Uh, that's the, the verse that comes to my mind. And, and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant, and the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. Notice that. He carried the ashes to Bethel. And we're going to find out why he did that, because look down at verse 15 in that same chapter. Because this, what we're reading now, is exactly what had been prophesied in the verses that we're looking at tonight. In verse 2 of 1 Kings chapter 13, this is where it ultimately finds its fulfillment. Because now, 290 years later, after it was prophesied, it says, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel on the high place with which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both that altar and the high place he broke down and he burned the high place and he crushed it to powder and he burned the wooden image to Ashtaroth, that is. And Josiah turned and he saw the tombs that were on the mountain and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and he burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed. And who is the man of God that he's talking about? The one that we're looking at tonight. This man of God who is in chapter 13 of, of 1 Kings here. It was recorded and he looked back on it and realized, can you imagine at some point, he, you know, whether he was aware, uh, you know, but it doesn't really matter, but he fulfilled that prophecy and he saw the tombs and he sent and took the bones out of the altar uh, or out of the tombs and he burned them on the altar. He defiled it. And um, which the according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. And then verse 17, then he said, what gravestone is this I see? 
And so the men of the city told them, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let him alone. Let no one move his bones. And so they let his bones alone and the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Because remember, they were buried together. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. And he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them. And he returned to Jerusalem. And so what an amazing thing. And here we have it before us here in chapter 13 of 1 Kings, the prophecy of what was going to happen. And then 290 years later here in 2 Kings uh, 23. Verse 15 through 20, we have the fulfillment of that. And you'd think after 390 years, everybody would have forgotten about it. Generations, generations, generations go by. 390 years, folks, a long time. And yet God means what he says. He says what he means. And to whom much is given, much is required. We're going to see this as we go on. But notice back in our text tonight, back in verse 3, it says, And so this man from, Beth, uh, from, from Judah, he gave a sign the, the same day, saying, uh, which the Lord has spoken, Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. And so it came to pass, when Jeroboam heard that, that he, he cried out from the altar, and he stretched out his hand. He probably did it in anger. And you know something? The older I get, whenever I, I do something really, like, really quick, and I've got to be careful I don't do it now, you know, you do something really quick and with a lot of gust, you know, and you find out that you probably pulled a muscle, but God evidently took the sinew in his arm and just tweaked it, and this guy couldn't even bring his arm back. And God did that. This man is supposed to be representing God, but instead he's wanting to arrest the man that God did send, and God just tweaks his arm, and he can't bring it in. And so it reminds me of a proverb in Proverbs 11. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it, and it comes to the wicked instead. And Jeroboam being the wicked man, in Proverbs 14, verse 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. And just think about how this man is reaching forth, and he's going to put this man, uh, have him arrested, and, and yet he's the one who paid the price. So the altar was split apart, just as the man of God said. And it's interesting because the miracle of the altar splitting in two, notice what it did. It was a sign. It was a miracle. And what did it do? It confirmed the word that the Lord had spoken through the prophet. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't, um, you know, God makes sure that his word does not confirm the miracle, but the miracle confirms God's word. Miracles, if you look in the Bible, they're often that way. They, God doesn't do a miracle just to, to entertain people. He usually does it as a sign after to confirm the word which was spoken. More often than not, that is, the, that is the way it is. He will say his word, and then he'll confirm it with a miracle. But it's not the other way around, because the miracle is not the important thing. The word of God is the most important thing. Wouldn't you agree? Isn't his word like a fire in your heart? Isn't his word often like a hammer? 
even to the unbeliever? And even though we see things seemingly getting away with right now, folks understand something, that evil does not triumph. We've read the end of the story, and it's not a story. We've read the end of the book, and the book tells me that Jesus reigns and wins, and we rule and reign with him. End of topic. I don't know about you, but that's really exciting. That's something I can get my head around. And guess what? You're not going to be on the losing team ever. You may go through a time right now where you feel like you're just washed up and that things are just useless. Ah, but there's coming a time, folks, and hang on to it. Hang on to it. Believe and understand that the word of God is going to come to pass exactly as he said it is. He's never lied to us so far. He's not in the habit of lying. He doesn't need to lie because he knows all things. I lie because I'm trying to, because I don't know all things and I'm trying to make something happen and I got to make a lie to to make it work. But God doesn't have to lie. He can just say, you know what? In two days from now, Rob, you're going to have tacos and you're going to have a little too much guacamole on one of them. He could tell me that if if he so chose. That's how much he knows. He knows the intricacy of your body. He knows exactly what's going on in the cellular level of every human being. That just blows my mind. It ought to blow your mind too, but that's the wonderful God that we serve. He is, his hand is not shortened like Jeroboam's is. His hand is strong and it's powerful and it's sure and it's going to happen. You can take it to the bank and you can deposit that check today. You don't even have to wait three days for it to show up. Verse 6 says, Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of my hand. You notice he says, To the Lord your God. He's being honest. You know, entreat Jehovah your God. That's literally what he said. Not my God. I could care less. But here I am serving this, you know, this molten calf. But could you ask Jehovah your God to help me and God in his grace? If I was God, I'd say, I'm not only going to strike that hand, I'm just going to strike your legs, and your other arm too. You're just going to be a quad. I'm just going to strike you right now, Jeroboam. But see, that's the way man thinks. But God is thinking, this man has an opportunity yet still. And I love the gracious, loving hand of God, even against those who are opposed to him. And that's just the mystery, isn't it? And folks, we, I've got to get that into my heart because uh, there are enemies that we have, that the church has. And the biggest enemy, the, really the only enemy, is Satan himself. And I need to remember that. Because until we're home, until he takes us, we we need to be sharing his word. We need to be sharing the love of God, the gospel to people who don't know him, that are opposed to him. People that we get angry with, those are prime candidates for the gospel. Let's never forget that. I need to remember that. I'll be honest with you. I need to remember that. So pray for my rotten heart. (laughs) Notice verse 7. The king said, come home with me and refresh yourself. But the man of God says, I I can't. Even if you were to give me half of your house, I wouldn't do it. And and so, uh, for so it was commanded me by the Lord, saying, you shall not do this thing. You shall not eat bread or drink water. And you have to go back the same way. And you know, when you think about it, um, this man of God was really following what Paul had said to the Corinthians. In chapter 6, verse 14, what did Paul say to the Corinthians? And here, the the man of God, and God is directing him to make sure that he does this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And here the man of God is representing righteousness and Jeroboam is representing lawlessness. And what communion, Paul goes on to say, has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He would go on in that chapter and say, come out from among them and be separate. Do not touch the unclean thing. And that's exactly what he's doing and so far, the prophet is doing really well. And in Ephesians 5, 11, it says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So back in verse 10, he says, So he went another way and did not return by the way he came. And up to this point, this man of God is doing really well, but now the things change. <laughs> And the old prophet uh, who dwelt in Bethel he came you know, to his sons, and his sons basically told him what had happened. And, and, of course, they saddle his donkey. The man, the old prophet, goes out to meet this man of God, and he meets him. And he says, are you the man of God who came from Judah? Verse 14, and he says, I am. And, and before we go further, the elephant in the room to me is, why did this old prophet remain in this area under Jeroboam's jurisdiction where sin and compromise was so prevalent? Why was he there? And why did he even want to meet this young prophet? Was he jealous concerning him? Maybe he was jealous because he was a young man and God was using him. And maybe this old prophet was feeling not only his age, but feeling like he had been washed up. And, he, and let me just suggest to you that the only reason that he might feel washed up is because he removed himself from God. He removed himself from being obedient to God. For had he been obedient to God, God wouldn't have had to send a man from Judah. He could have very well used this old brother in Bethel. So I wonder why he went after him. Could it be, you know, I wonder what this young upstart is, up, is all about. God's using him. God's doing some really great things. I want to go get, I want some of that to rub off on me. Maybe he's thinking about the glory days when God perhaps was using him. Was he jealous concerning him? Was he bitter because God didn't choose him to speak but use this other man, man? You know, God could have, but he didn't. Was it because the old man had become lazy and complacent? And folks, that's possible for any of us. And I want to encourage you, for those who are older, don't think to yourself that God can't use you. Regardless of your age, he wants and can use you. In fact, I think he really would love to use you because you've got something that most people who are many years younger than you, they don't have. You have such a great perspective on life. You've got natural, you've got, you got natural wisdom even. And then you have the wisdom of God on top of that. Think of the combination of that together. Not that God needs our worldly wisdom, but worldly wisdom is not bad, especially if it's under the reign of God. And to have both of those, God wants to use you. Don't ever think that you're so old that you are washed up and God can't use you. I would encourage you to get out there. You don't have to get out there like the young people because you can't walk and you can't run like they used to, but that's okay. You know what? You can do a lot of good and a lot of different things doing exactly what you can do. Ask the Lord what you can do. Don't think about what you can't do. What can I do, Lord, in this season of my life? And if you're really honest and you really want to know, your hands will be filled and you will live a blessed life. Wouldn't it be better to live that way rather than to just kind of sit at home and watch TV and eat unhealthy food? 
gain lots of weight, and then realize that your hips and your joints are blown out and you got to go get them replaced. And then you go to the hospital and then you get COVID. (laughs) Wouldn't it be better just to live a life that God wants you to live and still be in the game regardless of your age? I want to encourage you in that. Don't ever think you're too old that God can't use you. Don't think you're too old. So now the old prophet, he had a choice about how he was going to continue. And we do too, you know. How are we going to respond um, to God's word in the days in which we live? You know, the Lord has his faithful remnant like this young man from Judah. Notice verse 15, it says, Then he said to him, the older prophet to the younger prophet, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I can't return to you. No, I, I can't even, I'm not going to eat bread or drink water. We've already looked at this. For I've been told by the Lord not to do that. And then in verse 18, he lies to him. He says, I too am a prophet just as you are. And an angel, underline the word an angel, an angel, not even the angel, but an angel. And it wasn't even God himself. And yet God himself spoke to the young man. And now this other, supposedly older, man who I'm sure the younger man is looking up to at this point and this man says an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying bring him back to your house that he may eat bread and drink water and he was lying to him you know isn't that interesting because wasn't God able to speak to the young man he already spoke to him right if there was a change in plans God could have given him those plans he didn't need somebody else And it wasn't even God who spoke to the older man. It was an angel that spoke to him. But notice how easy it would be for the young man to kind of feel inferior to the older prophet, thinking maybe this man knows what he's talking about. Maybe the Lord really did speak to him, and so he acquiesces. But in doing so, he disobeys God. And Satan's strategy and you know this, is to cause true men of God and preachers of the word of God to depart from biblical truth. That's, his, that's what he wants. That's what he desires. It's what he wants to do to us. So if you hear from the Lord, don't let anybody take you away from the word of God. So he went, verse 19, back with him, and he did exactly what he shouldn't be doing. And so why did he contradict his word? I believe God would have blessed the younger prophet if he had not listened to the older man, because in that culture, you would naturally look up to an older man, especially a man of God. So I can't blame the young man for perhaps looking at the age disparity and thinking, you know, this man claims to be a man of God. I I believe him and and maybe reverenced him because he is his elder. But still, if God wanted to speak to the younger prophet, he could have spoken to him very easily. And I don't think God would have a problem when he has told you to do something, let, don't let anybody, don't let anybody, it doesn't matter who it is in Christendom, it doesn't matter if a famous preacher, a famous prophet, or whoever it may be, comes up to you and says, well, the Lord just told me. You know, and starts laying some trip on you, and then you're like, well, 
Well, the Lord told me privately in my bedroom at midnight last night that I was to do this other thing. And the famous guy who's got the big pinky rings and everybody's adoring him says, yeah, but the Lord told me something different. And you're to write a check for $100,000 as a seed faith through our ministry. Right? What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe God or are you going to believe the fancy man with the rings? It's interesting. If you look in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm just going to read the first uh, verses 4 through 11 to you. It speaks about spiritual gifts. It says, there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For one is given the, the word of wisdom. Didn't God give this man the word of wisdom? Or what about to, uh, through the same Spirit to another, the word of knowledge? Did God give to this young man the word of knowledge? And through the same Spirit to another faith by the saint, wasn't he operating in faith? To another gifts of healings, didn't he heal the man? Didn't he heal Jeroboam? To another, the working of miracles, didn't he perform a miracle? To another, prophecy, wasn't he giving a prophecy that wouldn't come to pass? Uh, a chunk of it anyway, for another 290 years? Yes, he did. And to another, discerning of spirits. And this is where it kind of broke down. Because it seems like God, through doing these things, he was operating by God using him in, in these ways. But when it came to this part now in, in verse 20, everything starts to fall apart. And see, we can't get lazy on the vine, can we? We can't get lazy. We need to continue to abide in Christ until our very last breath. But look at what happened in verse 20. And now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back and he cried out, and isn't this the pot calling the kettle black? Here is the man who deceived the young man and now God is using the old man to bring conviction and sentencing judgment on the younger man. It doesn't even seem fair. It doesn't even seem fair, but again, to whom much is given, much is required. God gave the young man the message. He didn't give it to the older prophet. He would have used the older prophet if, he, if that's what he wanted to do, but he didn't choose the man. He chose the young man, and he gave him a specific purpose. And so God's judgment was harsh on the, on the man who knew better and seemingly let the other guy off the hook. To whom much is given, much is required. And so, you, you remember what he said, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, the Lord is speaking through this man, and you've not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. And then he basically says, your corpse will uh, not come to the tomb of your fathers. And, and so, uh, that's exactly what happened. And, and, and notice that God is even using this guy. And again, what grace you know, what is a, it's just a gracious thing that, the God do, that God does here. But notice the, the compromise that we see in this older man. The compromise.
And it reminded me, again, uh, just, you know, when you have somebody older than you in the Lord, you know, it's good to respect them. It's good to look up to them. And there's a lot of, the impetus is really on the older, especially to make sure that they are walking in a way that's going to encourage the younger and, and, and not to allow them and not live a life and do things that would cause that younger one to stumble. You know, and, and that's one of the messages we can get out of this, you know, and, and, and it's, it, we have to be really careful, especially the younger. You know, if you're a younger person and you're looking up to somebody who is your elder, especially in the Lord, be very careful because sometimes, you know, people who've been around and they have a name or whatever, it doesn't mean that they can't fall into sin. And so we have to be really careful. And be careful you don't just look up to people. Make sure that you're where your altar really lies and who's, at whose altar you're, you're resting. Make sure it's at the, at the feet of Christ and not at the altar of some famous teacher or famous person because when, when you get to that level, there's a lot of people doing things for you and a lot of people willing to do things for you and it gets all twisted and weird. It can. It doesn't always, but it can. We need to always keep the Lord front and center and not a man. Once we get our eyes fixed on this, hor- on this horizontal, we'll forget the vertical and everything is going to go south. And we'll find ourselves in many hurtful things. To whom much is given, much is required. Verse 23, and so it was. After he had eaten the bread and he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him. And when he was gone, notice the lion met him and killed him. And like it says in James 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. This young prophet received a stricter judgment because he was told specifically, and he didn't obey. See, obedience is key to our Christian walk. Obedience to the revealed will of God. Are you obedient to the revealed will of God? Are you doing what the Lord says? You know, there's a lot in the Bible that's very clear. We don't have to, you know, I'm not worried about the things that I don't quite understand yet. There's plenty of things that I do understand that I do understand and I need to abide by. And are you abiding by that or are you allowing your life to get kind of in compromise like that older prophet? It's easy to do. And especially in America, it's so easy for us to do that because we've got everything. Everything has been provided for us. We have such a great heritage. A truly wonderful, great, and awesome experiment has been done in America. And we're the beneficiaries of it. And with that comes responsibility. And there's where most of us, many people in America, could be doing a lot better. And I'll say for myself, that's true of me as well. And so verse 25, and there men passed and they saw the lion and, and, and there by the corpse. And notice that the lion wasn't eating the corpse. And then the prophet who had come back says, it is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion. And, and so he goes and, and sees this man on the road dead. And notice in verse 28 that his corpse is thrown off by the road. The donkey is there. The lion is standing by the corpse. I mean, everything about this whole picture in your head just seems a little odd. Can you imagine just seeing the lion there? He's just sitting there. You know, and the corpse is over there, and it's all bloody. He 
you know, and the donkey's over there. The donkey's looking at the lion. The lion's going, why aren't I attacking these people? Why aren't I going after him? And why aren't I finishing the job over here? But the Lord restrained him, evidently. And he's just sitting there probably going, boy, this is really embarrassing. I'm a lion. I'm a king of the jungle. I should be having lunch right about now. And this is really odd, but I just, I don't have it in me. I just can't do it. And God, all the while, is going, ah, I control everything, even the mouths of the lions. Daniel knew all about that, didn't he? Thrown into a den of hungry lions, and they were just sitting there with their mouths shut. And they didn't lay a finger on him. They didn't lay a tooth on him. You know what? I would love to have been Daniel, especially after I knew that the lions weren't going to eat me. But there's a split moment. Can you imagine the exhilaration, the the Lord, if you don't do this, I'm toast. That moment is the most glorious moment in any Christian's life. One of the glor- most glorious moments when you know that if, if God, if you don't show up, I'm done. And I think about that. And I think about the faith that that did. What that did in Daniel's heart as he sat there for every moment and he's seeing the lions pacing right in front of him. And they're probably thinking to themselves, too. The lions are looking at one another and going, what is going on here? <laughs> and God restrained their mouths. And they're like, man, I don't understand this. We should be, we would have had him digested by now. But God. But God. And he laid the corpse, notice this old prophet he lays him in his own tomb and he says alas my brother and so it was that after he had buried him that he spoke to his son saying when i'm dead bury me with this man and that's exactly what happened and so for the saying which uh he cried out by the word of the lord against the altar in bethel and against all the shrines and the high places which are in the cities of samaria it surely will come to pass and notice the faith of this man and i almost wonder if this whole event was one of those things that was just spurring him on and making him feel like, you know, God, you you really are amazing. I've seen and heard some really awesome and amazing, wonderful things today. I've seen you do some miracles. What he spoke to Jeroboam and the the altar, you know, know, cracking in in the middle and the ashes being poured out and the prophecy that was said and, and Lord, why isn't the lion eating this young man? And, And I think that old prophet was thinking to himself, you know, that was, that could have been me. And I deserve that. The old prophet looking at this dead man who was faithful. Up to that point, he was faithful. Now, that, that man is in glory. I, I have no doubt. But that man looking at him going, you know what? That, that, that should be me because I'm the unfaithful one here. I'm the one who deceived this young man. And you know, God wasn't finished with this old man yet either, giving him an opportunity in the the golden years to really think about where he's at with God. I wonder what his life was like after this. Having that resonate in his mind that I should be the one that was eaten by the lion. And yet there was one who seems to have substituted my death. In this, we almost see the gospel, don't we? <laughs> uh, I mean, to, to some extent, okay? But the man of God was not innocent in that regard because he did disobey the Lord. 
And this thing, verse 34, was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, to consider. And again, it reminds me of of that verse that we looked at tonight uh, in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12. For everyone to whom much is given... From him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. What has God given to you? What has God asked of you? We be faithful to that. In the minutia of it, I, long, I want to be faithful to the Lord. And I, I believe all of us in this room, you wouldn't be here, chances are, unless you wanted to be faithful to the Lord. But he's given us much, hasn't he? I know he's given me much. He's filled my hands and my heart and my mind more than I could possibly imagine. And it's such a privilege, isn't it, to serve Christ? And especially today, folks, especially today, it is the greatest moment in history for the church. I believe that. If not the greatest moment, one of the greatest, one of the greatest moments in history, we're in it right now. And we've been given much. And I want to encourage you to really think about that verse and and let the Lord examine our hearts about it. Lord, you've given me much. What am I doing with it? Am I content just sitting in my chair and reading my Bible? And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'd encourage you to do that often. But if that's where we're at, and that's, we, never go, we never go anywhere from that place, there's a problem. Because God wants to instill within us. He wants to birth within us. He wants to instill in us this message, this grace, this love, this compassion, which are all fruits of the Spirit, by the way. He wants to give us all of those things so that we can be his ambassador and we can go out and have those on display like a Christmas tree. You know, Jesus said, you know, um, I am the branch, or I am the, I am the, um, I am the vine and you are the branches. Well, what's happening on those branches? Is there things, and that's really our witness, the branches of the tree, which we are, is our life a demonstration of such love and compassion and grace that others are looking at it going, you know what, I don't agree with their worldview, but there's something about these people. And i got to be honest with you, that convicts me so badly right now. Because I've been very frustrated and angry with things that have been going on. You can ask my wife. I'm just going to be honest. I got ways to go, but the Lord is knocking and he's working, and I want him to because I can't stay in this place. I know I can't. And you know, at at the very least, if I've got to get my anger and my frustration out, do it at the prayer closet. Do it at the side of your bed, wherever it is that you pray. Get it out there before the Lord. He can take it. He's got really broad shoulders. But I pray, and I'm trying so hard to say, Lord, help me when I leave this place that I'm not walking around all angry and bitter. Because I have. 
but it's got to stop. It's got to stop right here in my heart. And if you can relate to that, then let's do something about it. I need to do something about it. I don't want to continue going on like this. And it's a really tough time. And can I just say one other thing while we're finishing up here is be gracious with one another. Be gracious during this period. I've said this before, but we've never been in a place like this ever in the history of our country. If we have, it's been at the very beginning. It's never been like this, folks. Do you understand that? And how we respond, and, and, and all of us are responding in our own ways, and we're struggling with this. People are losing their minds. Thank God we have Christ, because if it were not for him governing my soul and my mind and my heart, I'm afraid of what I could have become. Seriously. And we've never been here before, so we're all trying to figure this out. Be gracious with one another. Pray for one another. We need to pray for each other unlike ever before. And these are just the the things that are happening on in the world. You know, what about the other things? Just in your own personal life, the you know, the cancer scares, the the you know, this test came back positive, this came back negative, and 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 my kids are going astray and my marriage is in shambles and I'm about to lose my job and I don't have anything in my four oh one K, I don't even know how where the money's gonna come from. And, you know, and you got all these worries to worry about, and then on top of all of that, you got all the stuff that's going on right now in the world. And we're all responding differently to it. And thank God we have at the root, at our anchor, is Christ. Without him, where would we be? I'm afraid where I would be, honestly. Thank God for Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Amen? So be encouraged. And let's love one another. Let's be gracious with one another. Let's take out our frustrations at the, at the throne of God. That the world around us can see the way God, would I think, would have us to be. Loving and caring. Still willing to share the gospel. Willing. Are you willing? Willing to share. We've got to change. We can't expect the world to change, but folks, we, the church in America, we need to change. I need to change. I want him to change me. Will you let him change you too? (laughs) Let's let him do it together, shall we? Seriously. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is... Amazing. Lord, you have given us much. And Lord, you gave this young prophet much. Lord, we don't want to fail you. We don't want to we don't want to do anything that would quench your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the grace and in the love that you've shown us. Lord, you, you've been so gracious to us, Lord. I, I confess the many mistakes that I have made, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this room. And yet, God, you still love us, and you still want to use us. Will you set us back on the narrow path again? 
and help us to walk in truth, to walk in purity, to walk in holiness. Lord, that the world could see the light that we have and that they would be convicted of the love that we have for them. Lord, and the love that you have for them. Oh, Jesus, please fall upon us. Minister to us, Lord. We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and light a fire in our hearts again. Would you please do it, Lord? We love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.